Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look to the beauty product industry. This is episode 180. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today, my co-host, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Beauty Brains. Hi, Perry. Valerie, we're going to do a theme show today. It's going to be all about hair. What do you think of that? Ooh, my favorite. Everybody knows that's my favorite topic, and uh, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. So uh, I woke up today with a lot of glee. <laughs> Excellent. And a lot of hair, too. <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, some of the, we we got a ton of questions come in about hair, so that's why we thought we'd focus one show today on hair. Maybe in the future we're going to do a show on skin, and then we'll do a show on. Well, we did that sun care show once, right? <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Yeah, but I think we're the right people to talk about hair because we both come from the hair industry. Exactly. So on today's episode, we're going to be answering your questions about whether hair products that claim to restore natural color in gray hair actually work, how Uidad Curl Conditioner works or how you can make it better. Uh, we're going to talk about products that can claim to thicken hair. We'll talk about how you can avoid hair damage and how you can know what ingredients actually do when they're put into your products. But before we get that into that, uh, do we have any uh, topics to discuss today? I actually was looking at your Instagram feed and it looks like you've been coloring hair. Yeah, well, not actually coloring hair. I'm not a licensed cosmetologist, uh, but I do color my own hair swatches that were once attached to humans. Um, yeah, I, I just like to work on lots of fun hair color. And uh, sometimes if I'm working on a particular shade and it doesn't come out the way I thought it would, I'll set it aside and uh, maybe use it for something for the future. And when I was going through... Uh, we, I have this box, I call it the grave, where all my ugly swatches go, or swatches that didn't really work out for the project I'm working on. All the, all the colors are really pretty. I was going through some of the, the projects and, and photographing a couple, but yeah, the, the colors are, are my favorite part to work on. So you color hair a lot on the job then? Well, yeah. Swatches anyway, not real people. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, pounds and pounds and pounds of it. You have to buy that hair from a special place and it uh, comes standardized and that helps me get consistent feedback on what I'm doing in the lab is appropriate to send out to the test salon before we actually send it out. So that's pretty good because sometimes it turns out a little different than I, I think it will and even going from swatch to a real human, it ends up a little more different. So uh, it's definitely saved a lot of people <laughs> in real life. I imagine it's really hard to know just if you say, I'm going to use 10% of this ingredient or 12% of this ingredient to know that percentage differences, how that's going to affect the actual end hair color. It's a little challenging sometimes. Uh, you get, uh, we don't use things as high as 10%, but right, uh, you get an idea of what the end color would be just from um, experience and understanding the dye chemistry. Like, okay, if I pick this coupler over that coupler, it'll be like slightly more warmer or slightly cooler. But even then, if you have a very specific tonal target in mind, uh, it can take a lot of revisions. And sometimes uh, I have to do it 10 to 12 times before uh, it's exactly what we're looking for. 
Well, if you want to see Valerie's hair work, feel free to follow her on Instagram. What's that Instagram account of yours? At cosmetic underscore chemist. Excellent. Well, Valerie, instead of doing a, a beauty science news, since we have so many questions, I thought we would play this comment we had about our show last week. Remember we talked about the online shopping for perfumes and how we didn't understand how that worked? Yeah, that was regarding Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, new brand, Henry Rose, and it's a direct-to-consumer. Kim sent in a comment which addressed that directly, and I thought we'd play it here because it's an interesting take on the online shopping for fragrances. Hi, Beauty Brains, Perry and Valerie. I've really been enjoying the show. Valerie, I'm really glad you're back. Um, I just wanted to comment on something that Valerie had mentioned in the most recent show about direct-to-consumer perfume companies. Uh, There's actually a similar company right here in my hometown of Austin called Fleur, P-H-L-U-R. And I found out about them not actually um, from going to a store, although I think they have a store here, but actually through a Facebook ad. And what's different about them is that you don't really purchase the perfume without getting a chance to try it. They will, for $18, they'll send you three samples that you pick from their collection. They're just tiny little vials that come in the mail. And then you can use each one several times. It's not just one dose or whatever of perfume. And the nice thing is that you can do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have anybody kind of breathing down your neck. And and really, most importantly, you can use the perfume and then wear it over several hours and decide how if you like it and experience how it is, because, of course, perfume changes over time as you wear it. So it's really kind of great to not have to make really basically a snap decision about a perfume. Um, you can really get to know what it's like. So I got the samples. I really love them. And then when I found the one that I liked, I found one I really, really liked. Uh, they gave me $18 discount towards my first purchase of a bottle of it. So I kind of got my money back on the uh, on the samples, which I thought was really great. They're just really a great company. I don't really know about any others. And um, I'm just not trying to plug them in particular. I just wanted to say that this kind of model of perfume shopping actually is one that I greatly prefer and actually hadn't been wearing perfume for years. Um, Just stumbled across this and thought I tried it, and it's turned out to be really, really great. So that's it. I'm really, really pleased to let you know also that I am a Patreon contributor, so I really just love the show. I'm really glad you guys are back on the air, and I look forward to listening to it every time it comes on. Thank you so much. This is Kim calling from Austin. All right. Thanks, Kim, for that. And thank you so much for being a Patreon. Actually, if you're interested in uh, supporting the Beauty Brains, you can go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe there. We appreciate all our patrons. Kim, first, I want to thank you so much for being a supporter of the Beauty Brains. Perry and I uh, do all this work on the show out of the goodness of our hearts and because we love the beauty industry so much and we love portraying our perspective to you. Uh, But I'd also like to thank you for submitting your commentary on this because I was very confused on the last show how direct-to-consumer perfume sales could work. And when I first was listening to your experience with Fleur, I thought, well, $18 is still pretty steep, but I could see how it gets you out of the department store, away from the peer pressure of the salespeople trying to make a commission on their perfume sales, but still it's $18. And I was so excited to hear that that money that goes towards the sample could go towards your purchase. And you're right, perfumes do change over time. They smell differently on everybody. And to get them in your home and natural environment and try them before you're buying is uh, pretty cool. So thank you uh, so much for sharing, that's awesome. 
All right, shall we get into all of the questions we got? Yeah. Bixeta asks, I have found this product that is restoring my hair color back to the shade I had in my youth. I used it for a few days and the silver and white turned darker and darker brown and my red undertones appeared as well. I use it less and less until all I need is once a week. It is said to remove the oxygen that builds up in our scalp as we age. What do you know about this product? The product she's referring to is called Hairprint, and we'll include a link to the product in our show notes. It has been around for a few years and claims to be a hair color without all the, and I'll put this in air quotes, toxic things that you would find in other hair coloring systems. That must be in their marketing because I was looking online at reviews of this product and everybody just touted about how there was no toxics in it or something. So so they must really target the people worried about that. Oh, for certainly they do. And hair print claims to restore the actual melanin that your hair was once producing, which is the reference made to in the question about getting rid of this bad oxygen that's ruining your ability to make natural hair color. Yeah, I saw that claim, and uh, right there I knew that they were, there were some shenanigans going on there. Because that doesn't seem quite right. You're, you're not going to be able to do that. No, and, and if you follow me on Instagram, if you've listened to prior shows where we talk about hair color, hair color chemistry is very archaic, but it's archaic in a way where I, I really feel like we discovered the best things to efficiently and effectively color hair right from the get-go. And I don't believe Hairprint has discovered anything new. I I think it's nice if you like the way in in which it colors your hair and makes it work and the ease of the system. It's an option for people, but I'm not sure that it's totally claiming uh, to be what it says. So you start out with a pre-treatment where you uh, treat the hair and essentially chelate anything out of the hair and really cleanse it. And I think this prepares the hair to take the actual hair coloring system. I was looking at it, it looked like it's pretty much a shampoo, right? Exactly. And if you look at the hair system that does the coloring, you'll see some extracts, sodium bicarbonate, hydrogen peroxide, carbomer for thickening, which isn't totally natural um, or food grade. <laughs> No, that was funny. The, the the natural folks who were writing about it were like, ah, I, I, I love everything about it, but there's this carbomer. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, it, they even call the ingredients food grade. And I don't know, do we eat carbomer in anything? Uh, I, I don't I, think I, so. I, yeah, yeah, I don't think so. But, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, I guess you never know. I'm not a food scientist. But uh, the active ingredients that really work are the hydrogen peroxide, which we've all heard in some reference or another to hair color, and then ferrous and manganese gluconate. Those are the key coloring ingredients. So I think how this product works is that it effectively opens up the cuticle with the alkaline conditions created by the uh, sodium carbonate, sodium bicarbonate, and the surfactants that are cleansing the hair, which is going to swell the hair fiber and allow other ingredients to enter in. And in this case, it's ferrous and manganese gluconate. When these uh, two ingredients go into the hair, the manganese dissociates from the gluconate, the ferrous part dissociates from the gluconate, and you're left with manganese and iron, which when are oxidized again uh, through hydrogen peroxide and the air, you will have a color develop. And that's when Uh, you're seeing the natural brown and red colorants in the hair. 
So metal colors, really. This is classic metallic hair color chemistry, but presented in a different way. So I do think that's really neat the way they did it, but I don't think they've discovered anything new in terms of how hair color chemistry works. Well, it sounds like interesting technology. It's nothing really new. Uh, and I'm not sure how well it works based on the reviews that I've seen. Uh, but certainly it doesn't work to jumpstart the production of eumelanin. No, it does not. And if you like natural coloring tones of the hair, such as the browns or reds, it may be for you, but you're not going to get any lift of your natural pigment out of the hair. So if you are let's say 50% gray, it's not going to, it's only going to deposit. It's not going to lift any of the natural melanin out of your hair fiber to create an even look. And again, you have to be okay with a pretty limited natural shade selection. It's not for everybody. Let's move on to our next question. This question comes to us from Misty. Misty says, first of all, let me say I'm so glad the Beauty Brains are back. I've been binge listening to episodes ever since I discovered it a few months ago. Wow. We have uh, 179 other episodes. And she says, I was hoping you might take a look at the ingredients in Uidad Curl Immersion Triple Treat deep conditioner. I had never tried the Uidad product before due to the price, but finally caved after reading some rave reviews about it. The problem is I really don't like it and unfortunately can't return it. I'm finding it doesn't have much slip for detangling while it's in my hair, and when I rinse it out, it just doesn't feel very conditioned. What is it about the product that would cause that? And also, is there anything I could do to improve it? I've heard adding things like honey, oil, or glycerin might help. Thanks. The first thing that strikes me about this is the problem with uh, online reviews and following what they say. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know if those things are really real or they were written by people who work for the company. So there is that problem. I think yeah. that's a huge problem online, you know. That's part of it for sure. And I, I've worked at a small brand where we have left reviews on products before just to help get the brand jump started. I think that's a real thing. Additionally, with hair, it's hard because everyone's hair is different. And so everyone's hair experience is different. And I almost feel like you should be required to submit a photo of your hair when leaving a review. Right, right. Not, not glammed up, but just of the actual hair fiber. Maybe that's something... Yeah. If anyone from Sephora is listening or Ulta, you could do, but uh, uh, really everyone's hair is different. So you have to take other people's feedback with a grain of salt. Right. Absolutely. Just because it works well for one person doesn't mean it's going to work great for, for you. Um, I, I always like to use the example, like when I shave, I just use hot water in a shower <laughs> on my face and uh. I'm not going to, while that works for me, I'm not going to say that's what people should do, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think that would work for everyone. Yeah. Exactly. So let's get to this uh, Ui Dad. Am I saying that right? Is that how you say that? Uh, I think I say We Dad, but Ui Dad could also be right. I'm, I'm very unclear on that. Wow. See, you know, this is a challenge when you're picking brand names. <laughs> people, people have to know how to say it. Anyway, uh, I actually, that We Dad, that could work too. But that, that, So that makes it like French, right? Yeah. O-U-I? We, we Dad. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Ah, oh, okay. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's uh, that's easier to say that way. So let's go with that. So the weed ad, she says that it leaves the hair without slip and it doesn't feel conditioned. And I'm looking at this ingredient list, and and the first thing I say is, Jesus, how many ingredients do you have in here? They have a ton of ingredients. Certainly, they are not minimalist formulators. Valerie, you want to give a go at uh, reading those ingredients? Oh, sure. 
water, cetyl alcohol, glycerin, olea europea, olive fruit oil, vitis vinifera, grapeseed oil, propane diol, stearometopropyl dimethylamine. Ethylhexoglycerin, phenoxyethanol, disodium ETTA, fragrance perfume. Wow, that was that was exhausting, but nicely done. You... <laughs> I started to wear down towards the end. <laughs> they have a ton of ingredients now. Uh, some of those ingredients are actually in there for conditioning your hair. If you look at it, the main ingredients for conditioning are their cationic surfactants. They have behene trimonium chloride and cetrimonium chloride, and then they also have steramidyl propyl dimethylamine. Really, the steramidyl propyl dimethylamine is higher in the list, so that probably has the most amount in it. And as far as conditioning goes, it's a good conditioning ingredient, but it's not going to give you a lot of slip. It's, for, In my experience, it's one of those ingredients that's better for feel than it is for like detangling and things. And if I look at this ingredient list here, they're missing some of the key ingredients for giving good slip and detangling, and that is uh, the silicones, you know. So they do have cyclopentasiloxane in there, which which is a decent silicone, but doesn't seem like they have a, a large amount in there. And they have amodimethicone way lower down in the list, so I don't think there's a lot of silicone in there. So the bottom line is they're not a lot of silicone, and so you're, you're not going to get a lot of slip, and so that's not surprising. Not surprising that you're not experiencing that. The other thing is they have some ingredients which, in my view, kind of interfere with good detangling, good slip, and that's things like shea butter and lanolin and, and even putting oils and glycerin on your hair. Those things, while they can affect moisturization and affect sort of the, the flexibility of the fiber, that can also make the fibers kind of stick together and kind of reduce the detangling effect of your conditioner. So it's kind of surprising to me that they they have that in there, but it's not surprising that you're feeling uh, you're not feeling your hair is really conditioned. Yeah, I think Perry brings up a valid point with the minimalist approach that he made earlier that they don't seem to have it. Uh, there is nothing wrong, by the way, with having a ton of ingredients in the product. The challenge is is exactly what Misty is having, where you want to have the hair feel conditioned and nourished, but then you have all of these other ingredients in there that are counteracting that effect. And in a way, a lot of people think, well, how can I improve this about a formula? And they just add something. And sometimes the right thing is to take something out of a formula when you're in the formulation process. And things like coconut oil, lanolin, uh, the shea butter, they just tend to leave this coating on the hair. And when you have so much of it, and it just it lays on the hair and it detracts from the fact that stearometopropyl dimethylamine, your hair should feel very nice in the wet stage and very rinsed and very conditioned. And if you're not feeling that, you probably have too much stuff in the formula. Actually, if I inherited a formula like this, the first thing I would do is run what I call a knockout experiment. And I would just sequentially go through and take out ingredients and see, do I notice a difference or do I not notice a difference? And does it really need to be in there? I would say probably half of those ingredients probably don't need to be in there and you'd probably make a better product. Yeah. And I know Misty wants to know if there's a way to improve it. Obviously she can't take stuff out. And right. um, she had asked if she could add honey or glycerin. And I definitely don't think those will improve things. I actually don't like the feel of glycerin on the hair. It's a little sticky. Yeah. People tend to use it because it's economical, uh, which means uh, cheap. That's a polite way to say that. <laughs> and there are some benefits, but yeah, it, it does make the hair feel a little sticky. And even in the rinse-off aspect, like a rinse-off conditioner, 
not anything that you leave on the hair. I, I don't like it. I mean, maybe she could try diluting it or just using it on a portion of her hair. Right. That's a good idea. Make sure you rinse it out. And then the other thing is if you just want the detangling effect, use a leave-in conditioner. That could help. Yeah, I wouldn't use this as a leave-in conditioner though. And I'll tell you guys why. So it does have some conditioning agents in it. And there are, some of them are regulated at a leave-on level or a rinse-off level. And so you never want to use a product that's designed for rinsing off left on the hair in case, and even from a preservation level, some preservatives are great to rinse off, but if you leave them on long-term and they come in contact with your skin, you could have some challenges. So don't use this one as a leave-on, use a different one. That's a great point though. Don't leave on rinse off products. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to the next question? Sheila Marie, thank you so much for being happy that the Beauty Brains are back. Every week she listens to the show on her commute home and her question has to do with a hair product called Nioxin. She wants to know if we can explain the science behind this product and explains what it means when it says the product thickens hair and thickens was in air quotes. So Nioxin has been around a long time and I only remember hearing about it in the late 2000s, but it actually uh, was started in I think 1987 and it was the first brand that, uh, as they claim, that really focused on the science of living hair. That was their quote. and. Uh, they started to gain popularity with products that nourish the roots, take care of the scalp. So while scalp care is super hot now, uh, Nioxin really was the first company that focused on the scalp. And that's where beautiful hair begins. So you should use their products. The name sounds medicinal, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And even all of the complexes that they use in their systems, like Transactive Delivery System, and they have all these trade names for their uh, secret blends that they use, sounds very pharmaceutical. It even kind of looks pharmaceutical, like maybe something you'd pick up at your doctor's office. But in the late 90s, they really focused on their products as innovative anti-aging product technologies for the scalp and they position themselves as the first non-drug alternative to hair growth, so strengthening hair um, at the scalp so it can grow out. And in the early 2000s, their popularity really took off with their hair growth technologies and different systems that help the skin on the scalp help the hair. And in 2008, thinning hair became really a trend on the rise where people were looking for thinning hair solutions. And so they created these um, thinning hair product systems. And if you look at them in the store today, uh, they're really seen as the number one brand for hair thinning. And that's where their product selection mostly focuses. So whether or not it works. So it is a comprehensive thinning line. They have uh, six systems and they're really looking at scalp health because of course, the FDA still says minoxidil-based products are the only ones that can be claimed to grow hair back. So if you look at their claim language, uh, it's it doesn't say it grows back hair. It doesn't say it prevents your hair from thinning, but they make claims like thicker and fuller looking, removes excess buildup on the hair and scalp, and really you're led to believe that the product is doing those things. They used to make these crazy claims like it removes DHT buildup from the skin so that your hair right. can grow. And uh, once yeah. Procter & Gamble acquired Nioxin, a, a lot of people said the products changed and they don't like them anymore. 
and a lot of the claims language changed and well that's probably because the the claims that they were making were probably a bit over the line <laughs> and as a small company <laughs> that's that's polite over the line yeah but as a small company it's easier to uh, push the envelope as it were with your claims but when a big company acquires you then they their legal people go through and say yeah hey you can't make that claim <laughs> so that that's why a lot of when, when a big company buys a small company that's why uh, things change because often the small company was doing things that were technically against regulations yeah and I know that um, one of my mom's favorite products was discontinued and, and she found a new one. My mom is a big fan of this brand uh, because she has thinning hair and she feels it works for her. Uh, so whether or not it really works, I don't know, but the, the products are focused on your scalp. And I also believe that in taking care of the skin on your scalp, making sure it's properly cleansed and not a lot of mechanical damage uh, on your hair, that you can mitigate a lot of the challenges that people have with hair loss, but if you are genetically predispositioned to hair loss or you have medical conditions that um, where hair loss ensues as part of it, I, I don't think this product really works in that respect, but I, I do get the, the treating your scalp aspect. And I think that's really cool that they were one of the first brands to really focus on that. And that's where you see uh, their products today. My advice that I give every show, um, Sheila, is that if you feel this works for you and your scalp feels good and your hair looks good, keep using it. Yeah, absolutely. But just know it doesn't actually grow your hair back. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating look at Nioxin. Yeah, and I'm not sure that we explained how the, the product thickens hair per se. I think we addressed that it's giving you the perception of thickening hair. So that's sort of the science behind the product. I do want to thank uh, one of my friends who uh, used to be a Nioxin educator and she's talked with me um, extensively about this product to help me understand uh, where their claims come from. The next question comes from Tina, who is having some um, scalp and hair challenges, and she's not sure how to fix it. But essentially, she has Caucasian hair that seems to break off excessively and is almost always frizzy. It has different textures in different places, and she's not sure what kind of shampoo and conditioner she should be using. Essentially, she wants some insight on how to get a clean feel that leaves her scalp clean without feeling like there's waxy residue and buildup on it after shampooing and conditioning, but also that helps her hair feel like it's in a good, healthy condition. She just doesn't want any further breakage and wants to improve the condition of her broken, dry, and frizzy hair. Ah, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's probably a pretty common problem with, with a lot of people, right? Yeah. It's, it's challenging because when you buy products, if you have really damaged hair and you're buying products that help, first of all, nothing can ever really fix broken or damaged hair. But if you buy these products to help fix hair that feels really dry, is frizzy, keeps breaking, they are depositing a lot of items. And also when you buy the products as a system, so you're buying a shampoo for this purpose and a conditioner for this purpose, you're depositing lots of stuff onto the hair. And I can see how yeah. she's feeling like there's this waxy residue buildup. And then her hair still just is like, meh. So hopefully we can give her some product advice. Right. Well, one of the main things is that it, it all starts with your shampoo. A lot of shampoos, the moisturizing shampoos, the two-in-one shampoos, if you look at them, they have things in them that are supposed to deposit on the hair. 
if you're having this problem, the first thing you want to do is get a cleansing shampoo that has very minimal moisturizing or conditioning ingredients. Something like Suave or VO5 or Neutrogena used to have the, that clarifying shampoo. But essentially use a clarifying shampoo to clean your hair as best as it can get cleaned. Hair and scalp. Yep. Now the problem with products like that, of course, is that it will leave your hair in a non-conditioned state. And if your hair is damaged, that's going to lead to more frizz. It's going to make it harder to comb. And so you really do need to have a conditioner treatment afterwards. And my suggestion would be to use a conditioner after you shampoo. First, it will help to, the, the shampoo will help to remove the buildup of what you've had before. The conditioner, if you're using a light conditioner, that will uh, put a, a light layer of conditioning on your hair and help to uh, treat the hair. But the reality is, once your hair is damaged, uh, it's very difficult to get it to behave in a way, especially without using conditioners. I think, too, uh, Tina, you can play with a couple different routines in the shower. So I know a lot of people like to use sulfate-free shampoos because they're perceived to be gentle on the hair. Uh, but the reality is they also deposit a lot of items on the hair. I don't think they rinse very easily from the hair. So I would use something that's clarifying at the scalp. And I don't even do that every day myself. I do that only a couple days a week. And the other couple days of the week, I just actually use water and my hands on my scalp to work through anything unless I'm feeling super dirty. So that way uh, I'm not shampooing really every day. Another thing Ooh, you can... I'm reminded of a product that I used to work on, the VO5 hot oil treatment. Now, the thing that made the hot oil treatment uh, interesting is that it was supposed to be used before you shampoo. Ooh. So you go check out. I, I think you can still get VO5 hot oil, but it's a... I think you can, yeah. yeah it's, and it's essentially a... It's really a conditioner. If you look at the main ingredient is uh, cocoa trimonium chloride. And you put this cationic material on your hair first. And then when you wash it with a like a clarifying shampoo, for example, it's going to still wash everything out. But there's a reaction that happens between that cationic and the anionic in the shampoo. And that's going to plate out some conditioning material onto your hair. Uh, so you, you clean off all of the old conditioner stuff and you leave a light layer of conditioning on. So that might be a, a possibility too. You could also try taking a conditioner before you shampoo your hair and only applying the conditioner to the middle and bottom of your hair where you feel it's most damaged. And then you can shampoo your hair. That might help on the really damaged parts. Uh, help mitigate any adverse effects from the shampoo. And you could also try mixing conditioners. So you have different uh, hair textures and, and hair damage areas. You could put something that's very light on your roots so that, or on the scalp, uh, so that you're not depositing too much, but then use the heavy duty stuff just on the bottom. And that might give you a customized targeted treatment for your hair. And you could try that before, you could try that after, but definitely play around to see if there's any help. Who knew hair care could be so complicated? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's people brush it off as a dead, but it really is a living substrate on the hair. It's chemically alive. That's what I always say. <laughs> Indeed. All right, on to the next question. This one comes to us from Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, uh, you know, after a glowing uh, endorsement of how much she loves the show, she, she, she says, I like to grow my hair out long, so that means avoiding damage as much as possible so that I can keep all the length I can get. 
So how, in your opinion, do, do you do that? How do you minimize the amount of damage to your hair? What conditioning ingredients really help? And do deep treatments really help? I guess this is a question about, you know, how do you minimize the damage to your hair? And we did, we did talk about a bit uh, in a previous show about what damages hair, but uh, why don't we just go through some tips about how you can minimize hair damage? It's always good to have a review. Uh, the first step is to minimize washing. The truth is water is very damaging to hair. It's one of the number one causes for weathering hair. It's why it's number one right here. And uh, getting the hair fiber wet swells it, changes some of the hair chemistry that's on it, and then the hair feels and uh, is damaged as a result. Another tip is that you don't want to color your hair, certainly not with uh, permanent hair colors, because the process of coloring your hair is one of the most damaging things you can do. It's not the most damaging, but it's certainly one of the most damaging. So if you want to minimize damage, minimize the amount that you color your hair. Exactly. The other thing is heat is also really damaging to hair. So you want to make sure that you don't use a curling iron or a flat iron too much. I know it's hard to get away from that. And if you are, really, 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 really use a product that has thermal protection. Another thing, if you want to minimize damage, be sure to always use a conditioner. Silicones work very well. They can build up on your hair. And so if you want to try to minimize that, look for things with cyclomethicone in it because that will evaporate off of the hair. But silicones do provide some protection for other damaging things that you're going to do to your hair. Such as the next things on our list, combing and brushing the hair or using hair ties like scrunchies. Mechanical damage is a huge factor to breaking hair fibers. So if you're constantly brushing something physically in your hair, twisting your hair, tying it tight with a hair scrunchie, this physical force can cause the hair to break and can cause rough surface damage. And we call that mechanical damage in the cosmetics industry. Another thing related to chemical treatments, of course, this probably could have gone higher, but I don't think this happens a lot for most people. Getting a perm or relaxing your hair, those are chemical treatments and are the most damaging thing you can do hair. So if you're trying to grow your hair out long, don't have those procedures done on your hair. Well, while perms are not as fruitful and abundant as they used to be, people still are getting them. It's crazy. Uh, I have a friend who whose sister still uh, perms her hair and it's like the big family wow. secret. Um, it's something they just don't talk about. <laughs> But anyway, one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes from Legally Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great movie. Yeah, that was that was classic. Uh, and that's like one of the only movies where it, it all turns on a, a, a hair treatment. <laughs> yeah, what a great film. I should rewatch that this weekend. Uh, the other thing uh, to do is to protect your hair from the sun. If you're out for a long time, sun damage causes a series of chemical reactions cascading through the hair fiber. And some of it includes reducing the uh, amount of melanin that you have in the hair, depleting hair color if you have synthetic colorants in the hair, but also permanently damaging the protein structure of the hair fiber. All right, Valerie, just to finish up on this question, she does say, what do you think about the air drying versus the hair drying debate? Where do you fall on that uh I think um, it really depends. Uh, you know, of course, heat styling the hair does cause damage to the hair fiber. But if you, A, are not overdoing it, not using too much heat, you can use a heat protectant, maybe a blow-dry cream with a thermal ingredient in it, and you should have less damage there. Um, air drying 
people can tend to get an undesirable uh, end look or texture to the hair right. or frizz. And I don't know that that's great either because then you're applying more mechanical manipulation to the hair fiber, which is also not good for it. So I think it comes down to a personal choice. Certainly if you're using a blow dryer that's too hot or you're not protecting your hair while you're using it, that could be more damaging. But, you know, air drying isn't free of damage either. If, if people are curious about me, I, I air dry, uh, but I don't even comb my hair, so I just <laughs> use my fingers. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I don't comb my hair either, and it's very evident <laughs> if you see my hair in um, Instagram. <laughs> or on a Saturday morning. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Our next question comes from Sophia. Sophia says, I'm obsessed with not damaging my hair because I literally put hundreds of dollars into it. My friends tell me that hair dye is fine, but I'm not so sure. As a cosmetic chemist, you would know just how damaging does hair dye cause. And even if I only do it once, what effects would that have and how would I recover from it? Thanks. Well, Sophia, we just talked about hair damage and coloring your hair, as we said, is one of the more damaging things you can do. You know, the only thing more damaging is what? Relaxing and... And perms. Yeah, and actually uh, bleaching. Bleaching is uh, horrible for the hair. So if you're actually, you know, looking for a balayage or highlights or a sun-kissed look and bleach is used, that's that's really bad for the hair fiber. At the, at the end of the day, hair color bleach, any of that, any chemical manipulation to the hair is damaging. And if you really don't want to damage it, A, minimize the amount of washing you do to your hair, but minimize the amount of chemical treatments. And that's including hair color. So the hair color uh, goes into the hair and it performs some light bleaching because of the hydrogen peroxide and ammonia present. It's removing the natural colorant from the hair fiber, your melanin. It's degrading the melanin in the hair and then it's depositing dyes via a chemical reaction. And then you mitigate the swelling effect of the hair by using a low pH conditioner afterwards. And just this mechanical disruption of the hair strand can cause uh, damage to the cuticle layer. The use of an alkaline system such as ammonia causes chemical changes on the hair fiber. And at the end of the day, you can color your hair once, as you mentioned, maybe doing it once, but when you color your hair, you need to keep doing it or you'll get this line of demarcation on the hair where it's evident you once colored your hair in your natural color is growing back out. So if you're really concerned about not damaging your hair and saving all the hundreds of dollars you put into it, which is not including coloring services that you're not doing, that's pretty impressive, uh, do not do any (laughs) chemical treatments on your hair. My wife always laughs at how much I spend on my hair. I guess there's a a guy I, (laughs) first, I don't like to get my hair cut, but every every so often my wife says, hey, you need your hair cut. (laughs) But the, so I'll go to I walk across the street. There's a guy over there. He's from Serbia and he doesn't really speak much English. He always says, "Thank you, my friend." That's that's all. That's the only thing he ever says to me. But he only charges uh, five dollars for a haircut. <laughs> five dollars for a haircut? That's a great deal. Well, I pay fifteen. I give him a ten dollar tip, which is why he probably likes me. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's probably why he uh, charges you five, and then, and then the ten dollar tip is a bonus. If he charge you fifteen, maybe you wouldn't tip that much. <laughs> uh, it, indeed, but it 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 always amuses me how much how much money I spend on my hair versus how much my wife spends on her hair. I would say that could be a, a common trend among spouses, <laughs> one spending more than the other. Yeah, I won't say which one I am. 
But the bottom line on this one, Sophia, is that if if you really just do the hair coloring once, your hair will recover. Your your hair grows out. So it'll even if you get your hair colored, it'll be a little bit damaging. Uh, but if you don't do it again over the years, the hair grows back about what uh, a half an inch a month. So you know, two years later, your hair will be back to what it was. Yeah, the good news is you always have new hair. Hi, Perry and Valerie. My name is Jeannie from Puerto Rico. I have a question regarding information about product or ingredient claims. We often see companies marketing a product with a certain ingredient and stating this ingredient provides you with this benefit. Like for example, a hair cream with shea butter and coconut oil marketed as a heat protecting cream. Or a cinnamon hair mask marketed that cinnamon helps your hair grow. With so much misinformation out there in the internet, where can we as consumers find if these ingredients actually provides what they're stating? Thank you for your podcast and helping us learn so much. Well, thank you, Jeannie, for that question. It's a really good one. There is a ton of information that you can get freely available on the Internet. Unfortunately, there's a ton of terrible information on the Internet, too. Yeah, if I use that cinnamon hair mask product, I would be dead. I don't know if you guys know this. I am allergic to cinnamon and clove. Um, wow, what a horrible idea. <laughs> That's right. Wow. And then uh, another one is the uh, shea butter and coconut oil uh, as heat protectors. Yeah, they, they don't work like that, I don't think. Eh, yeah, there you go. So how would somebody know that, Valerie? So now you're a chemist, of course, and you have some experience with, with ingredients and things. But before you were a chemist, how did you learn about ingredients? Because certainly the stuff that we learned in the industry is not stuff that they taught us in college. No, well, there. are you know, the internet is a, a great resource for me, but as a chemist, I know where to look for credible resources. And I think uh, while there there is no single source, I think the Beauty Brains is a good place to start. You have two cosmetic chemists right here. And I will say that we offer a perspective uh, on the products. Perry has a perspective. I have a perspective. And it's also important to check out other resources. It's a unique perspective in that most of the things that you're going to see online are by marketers who have some sort of skin in the game and convincing you to uh, use a certain product. Or they're from people who have a naturalist perspective on the world and they view everything that's not natural as just terrible. And so they're going to steer you towards ingredients that fit into that perspective, even if they don't necessarily work the best. So it's it's really hard up front to know whether the information you're getting is, is somehow biased. I guess all information is biased in a way. Mine is kind of biased in a, uh, a more skeptical view, which I don't think that's a bad thing, though. No, I, I mean, I think that leads to the next point that we want to make is that you should assume that things generally don't work because most things don't work in the way that you think they do. And I don't want you to people to be really hard on that and be super cynical, but I think it's important that in any aspect of your life, have one little note of skepticism and say, well, if I look at it from the other side, would this hold true? And in other episodes, Perry has gone through how to go through something with a little bit of skepticism and to make a decision on your own of whether you think it really works or not. Now, when I want to find out about an ingredient, because I haven't memorized the effect of every ingredient, and science is is always changing, the first thing that I will do is go look at the Journal of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. It is actually indexed on PubMed, 
And so you can go to the PubMed website, put in an ingredient and then the journal of SEC and see if anybody has done any research on it. You know, in reality, there's just not a lot of published research on a lot of these ingredients, especially natural things or even some of the things claimed by marketers. The research that is done is often done at the company, and so it's sort of secret research, or it's done by a university person who has limited access to certain ingredients too. And so there just isn't a lot of research published, but there is some. Yeah. The other thing that you can do is follow cosmetic scientists on social media like Perry and I. There are other cosmetic chemists that we can put in the show notes on social media. And again, they offer a perspective based on their expertise in the industry. I don't believe that there is one person who really knows it all. So if you have questions concerning hair, I would follow cosmetic chemists that work in hair. I, I see a lot of comments about hair color by other cosmetic chemists. And I don't agree or think they're infactual. And so if you have hair color questions, follow someone who works in hair color. Just like I would never make uh, comments about skin if I didn't know the answer or toothpaste. But there are a variety of cosmetic scientists on social media that offer a viewpoint on their area of expertise. It's It would be rather impossible to be expert in every aspect of cosmetics and ingredients. And so you have to look at a lot of different sources. I also like to go to Google Scholar and look up ingredients there and see what kind of published data there is on that. Uh, but even so, if you don't have a background in science, some of the reading some of these uh, published reports is it's not going to be terribly useful either. You kind of need it to be filtered through somebody who understands what is going on there. And the media is supposed to do that, but the media is not terribly reliable on a lot of things because they are not discerning about who they choose as their experts. Uh, I've I've seen people quoted as experts or groups quoted as experts who really have no background in science, even though they're uh, selling themselves as that. So you have to really remain skeptical about that, too. All right, Valerie, it looks like we've talked the hell out of this show, huh? Yeah, uh, I'm so happy we got to do a whole episode on hair. I have missed talking about hair so much because I haven't been able to do that for the last month. So thanks for appeasing me. <laughs> no problem. We still have plenty of hair questions left, so we'll cover those in future episodes. Uh, and we'll get to some of your other questions uh, in future episodes. So thanks so much for listening. If you get a chance, feel free to go over to iTunes and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that uh, we get more questions about hair, color cosmetics, and all kinds of beauty products. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. Thanks, Valerie, for getting up on this uh, early Saturday morning. Uh, it's a rare time for recording. And thank you all for listening. And remember, as Randy Schuler once said, be brainy about your beauty. That was my cat call. Uh, oh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> Sounded like a sick old cat. I might keep it in. <laughs>
Ravens. 